0: Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast, episode number 19. My name is Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders at Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. On today's episode, Dr. Gerald Ozier takes us through the last couple of weeks in cybersecurity news, and we sit down to talk with Ira Winkler, award-winning CISO and top-selling author.
1: Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm Jerry, and this is the Simply Cyber Report powered by Lima Charlie, the top cyber news stories you need to know about right now. A custom-made malware that is virtually undetectable by conventional antivirus and agentless tools has been observed mining Monero cryptocurrency on open-source Redis servers around the world. The malware, named HeadCrab, has been taking advantage of Redis servers' ability to replicate and synchronize data across multiple nodes within a Redis cluster. Threat actors have been observed exploiting the Redis server synchronizing process in order to load a cryptocurrency miner on internet exposed Redis systems. Typically, a Redis cluster consists of designated servers that are either designated controller or worker servers, which are not configured with authentication due to normally being run on secure closed networks. Designation of the servers and pairing is accomplished by issuing a legitimate replica of Redis command, which pairs worker servers with controller servers. A threat actor can manipulate the process by issuing a malicious replica of Redis command to pair the legitimate worker Redis server and pair with a threat actor-controlled controller server to download the headcrab malware. The malware headcrab is the second Redis-targeted malware that cybersecurity researcher firm Aqua has reported in the past months. The best mitigation for preventing the malware from being successful is disallowing the replica command. Ensuring the server requires authentication, as well as periodically scanning the Redis configuration files within the environment if all else fails. Remove the server's exposure to the internet will help mitigate the risk of infection. Tracked by cybersecurity firm CrowdStrike, Scattered Spider, which is a separate cybersecurity firm, Group IB, tracks as Roasted Octopus has reportedly hit more than 130 organizations that have obtained 10,000 credentials in various campaigns. Since early 2023, the Octopus campaign has been seen deploying a phishing domain impersonating video game makers like Roblox and Zynga, marketing firms MailChimp and Intuit, as well as Salesforce, Comcast, and Grubhub. So the big players here. The majority were found to be designed to mimic Octa login portals, with a small number also impersonating Microsoft. Now, according to CrowdStrike, the group has expanded the usual victim scope from gaming and financial industries, which now includes various technology sector companies. Some speculation has surrounded the group, yet no verification if Octopus is the same group that hacked the giant game developer Riot Games last month. As the financially motivated group is mimicking Okta login portals, an end user could prevent getting fished and hooked with the proper scrutiny of login portals and only accessing needed Web pages. Semantics threat search team discovered a Russian hacking group named Nodaria, also UAC 56 and has been using a new GoLang-based information stealing malware called Graphiron to attack Ukrainian organizations. The info stealer malware has been known to masquerade as an office as OfficeTemplate.exe and Microsoft Office Dashboard.exe in order to attempt to hide as a Microsoft Office component. The research team discovered the hacking group using the information stealer since at least October 2022 through mid-January 2023. Graphiron has been observed to have the ability to read machine GUIDs and retrieve the host name, system info, and user info from the compromised devices. The malware is also known to steal data from Firefox, Thunderbird, applications, steal private keys, data from putty, stored passwords, basically all the good information stealing stuff that threat actors want to get a hold of. They can also manipulate file structures to include creating directories, listing directories, stealing files, running shell commands, etc. It's a full-featured malware. Typically, the hackers deliver the payloads in spear phishing emails concurrent with the ongoing war against Ukrainian organizations and leadership. And with proper email filtering technologies and training, the malware will not proceed past the filters. So be mindful of that. This is not your friendly artificial intelligence happy helper robot, Qbot, while being fairly aged, and has undergone major changes. Qbot, aka Quackbot, originally fielded as a banking Trojan, has evolved into malware that can gain initial access to a host or network, drop additional malware on infected systems, and perform other activities across a network to include information stealing and facilitate ransomware, to name just a few. To combat utilizing malicious macros, Microsoft had disabled the use of macros inside Of documents by default. Last month, a new vector of infection was observed using a OneNote attachment inside of phishing campaigns in order to subvert protections placed by Microsoft. Now, threat actors are able to embed almost any file type when creating malicious OneNote documents, including Visual Basics scripts and LNK files. Although almost foolproof, threat actors will still need to socially engineer their victims into executing either by double click viewing the file option or another form of calling action on the file maintaining scrutiny and emails from unknown senders as well as reported reporting suspicious activity that deviates from normal business operations should be considered best practice time to update those business continuity and incident response plans as the clop ransomware malware will not be broken long Researchers from Sentinel-1 have observed the latest CLOP variant that is targeting Linux systems in educational institutions, which appears to be in its initial development stages. The Linux variant is missing many of the obfuscation and evasive capabilities that are present in its Windows counterparts. The Linux variant of the malware has been successful in numerous high-profile attacks, resulting in hundreds of millions of dollars extorted from its victims. However... A one researchers have released a free decryptor for the current variant, which is awesome. And due to the faulty nature in its encryptor logic and hardcoded master key, they were able to develop that decryptor. The victims can decrypt any data without paying the ransom. This is huge. The rise and cross-platform programming language like Rust and Golang allow porting malware from one platform to another. According to Antonio Tarifos, threat intelligence researcher at Sentinel One, they have seen this with other groups such as Hive, Royal, Lockbit, and Agenda ransomware groups leveraging those cross platform porting languages. Now remember to check out slash streams to get longer form, deeper dive content in cyber threat briefings every single weekday morning. I'm Gerald Lozier from Simply Cyber. Consider yourself armed with knowledge. <whistles>
0: Next up, my conversation with Ira Winkler. Hey, Ira, thanks for being on the show with us today.
2: Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Uh, To get going, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us what your company does?
2: So my name's Ira Winkler. I'm currently CISO for Security, which is C-Y-E space security. I keep joking. I wish they would just say C-Y-E. I'm the CISO there, we focus on risk optimization. We have a really, really cool platform. That's why I joined the company in helping, actually helping CISOs get the budgets that they need, not the budgets that they typically deserve, which is very little because they can't make the business case for it. But also wrote the books, You Can Stop Stupid at Security Awareness for Dummies were the last two.
0: Yeah, I took a look at the website, and I think it's um, you guys subscribe to that idea that uh, security isn't a destination, but it's a never-ending journey where you're just kind of managing risk along the way and, and optimizing for the best outcomes.
2: Well, base, I mean, that's a you know that's a good way of of highlighting it because really what I think is cybersecurity is really about risk. You know, I've been saying this since 1996, which was probably dating myself, but I always thought that. There's no such thing as security. You know, I joke when I get presentations, I ask people to raise their hands if they're a security professional, then I go, you're all failures. <laughs> and the reason is, is that security is to be free from risk by definition. And you're never going to be free from risk. And the problem I've always noticed is that cybersecurity professionals, CISOs especially, because that's fundamentally their job suck at getting the budgets that they need. I joke, they get the budgets they deserve, not the budgets that they need, and they need to learn to deserve more. Mm -hmm. And the way you do that is like every other group in the company, like when, for example, if a COO walks in and says, we need to upgrade a factory floor, they're gonna be like, well, what does it cost? What's the benefit and so on? And they're gonna say, well, the upgrade will cost X, However, we'll have more productivity. We'll be able to return Y, and so on. And that's a business case. Likewise, the CFO, when they go ahead and want to make a, you know, want more money, they go ahead and say, okay, I need to implement this. This will get me a return on investment of this, and I need that. Which the way cybersecurity budgets typically are worked out is like, okay, tell me what you got last month. Okay, or last year, and then it's like, okay, great, we'll give you a little bit more because we think the cybersecurity budget should be 7% of the IT budget. And we raise the IT budget, so we'll raise the security budget. That doesn't make any sense Mm -hmm. because you're not actually making the business case. You're just making a random assumption that somehow cybersecurity is a percentage of IT, which it's not. You know, frankly, you look at a bank, a bank, They don't look at it, the smart banks, I should say, they don't look at it, well, the IT budget's this, so therefore the security budget should be that. The smarter, larger banks are looking at it and saying, wait a second, we do trillions of dollars a day in transactions. Our cybersecurity budget is protecting those trillions of dollars a day. What we're spending on the IT to get us there is pretty much irrelevant. So, we have to go ahead and make the business case of what are we protecting and what's the right amount of budget to put in. But more effectively, why I like Sci is it's, you know, we're able to break down what is the risk for a given vulnerability. And then what is the, you know, cost of mitigating that vulnerability? And is there a positive return or not? And then, even if there's a positive return, you're never going to be able to get rid of everything. Where are the most cost-effective places to mitigate risk? Where's the lowest hanging fruit, for example? What other things which might be high-hanging fruit are going to give us a bigger payback? Mm -hmm. And that's, I mean, that's been my holy grail that I've been searching for my career. So seem to have found it.
0: Do you think that, like, you know, with the implementation of thin clients and zero trust, security in depth and uh, staff training, do you think we're ever going to get to a place where companies can be secure? Or is it always going to be a firefight?
2: No, I mean, you're never going to be secure by definition. There's always going to be some element of risk. Mm -hmm. And you have to accept that. What you, however, have to accept is how are you balancing that risk? Are things... You know, are things reasonably okay given the business environment, what you're protecting, and so on? And that should be made by making a rational decision based upon hard numbers, not based upon estimates, not based upon a gut feel, which frankly, in the cybersecurity industry, we have standards like FAIR. FAIR considers a lot of things. But at the end of the day, it breaks things down to what You know, it breaks things down to a perception of the risk. It doesn't break it down to actual risk. And, you know, again, I wasn't planning to do a commercial for my company, but, you know, we have machine learning models because a lot of people, I'll take a step back later, but machine learning models of actually going through lots and lots of data from insurance data, from former cases and everything like that and figuring out, okay, what is the actual financial risk? And then based on the network architecture, infrastructure, and so on, what is the probability that any given vulnerability is going to be exploited? Now the data is there and available, and that's why we're able to do stuff. And frankly, you know, without machine learning capabilities, you know, people were not able to get to that point, but luckily we, we are getting to that point. And, you know, you didn't ask me this question, but frankly, I think a lot of people don't know what machine learning is. They think it sounds like some sort of robot, Mm -hmm. you know, like robots taking over the world type of thing. But at the end of the day, machine learning is really just some more advanced mathematical algorithms above and beyond traditional statistics. Mm -hmm. So they look at things like, okay, statistics gives you probabilities of different events, you know, given a finite set of... Variables you put in machine learning algorithms are just more advanced mathematical models that allow you to take in more attributes and, you know, run through more scenarios, more cluster analyses and things like that to help vague decisions be less vague, for lack of a better term. Mm hmm. And um, then you work to define the probabilities. But a lot of people don't realize that it's the algorithms are one thing, and they've been kind of starting to be well-established. They're still being evolved. But at the same time, you actually need to determine through trial and error, okay, so I have this mathematical model, but what should be the input variables I put in? And then also, like, just for example, cluster analysis. You take variables and you try to get all the data clustered together, but then you have to determine yourself, what is the right number of clusters to potentially try to study?
0: Yeah, right, because if you put in bad input, you're going to get bad output.
2: Well, yeah, even if the input's good, it's still a matter of trial and error, and you have to do a lot of trial and error beyond just knowing what the math is. You have to actually make determinations and go through a lot of permutations Yourself on what's going to work or or not work, and that's why, you know, it's complicated. It's not just like putting in like the traditional set of numbers and getting a mean and a standard deviation, as an example. Mm -hmm.
0: You self-describe as someone who's been in security way too long. How long has it been, and how'd you get your start?
2: Technically, 1984. Don't quote me on that, but well, technically, it's on LinkedIn. So I started my career at the National Security Agency. Got out of college, was hired as a. I really, I was just hired. I wasn't really hired as anything, and I, they allowed me to interview around. They offered me a few internships, and like I didn't want to ha- anything to do with computers. I didn't want anything to do with cryptanalysis. And then I took a job which sounded so cool as being an an intelligence analyst. In the National Signals Intelligence Operations Center, which is NSA's pretty much the nerve center where all of the reports go into, all the reports technically go out of, and, you know, where crises are monitored around the world and so on. I thought that sounded awesome. And God, did I hate that job so <laughs> much. I thought I couldn't hate computers any more than I hated that job. And I reapplied for the computer intern program and got into that. And that's why I was cross-trained. And then ironically, when I said I wanted nothing to do with computers, I wanted nothing to do with cryptanalysis because I didn't want to look at ones and zeros all day. My first thing they put me into was programming supercomputers to do cryptanalysis. (laughs) It was quite the irony. They really wanted to see how much I hated my other job, I guess. But um, anyway, from there, my career pretty much took off was there a lot of
0: threats back then? I know everything was wide open. I've read a little bit about the history of the NSA, and and I know there wasn't really the uh, realization of the threat that uh, cybersecurity had at that point. Did you kind of see the evolution of the bad actors? Did it go from mischievous hackers to, like, nation-states, or was there always a threat from nation-states?
2: Well, there was always a threat, and, there. well, frankly, there was always a threat from nation-states. That's a given. Like, NSA... Like, people were starting to criticize, you know, what happened was, and you have to understand, like, really delve into the hacker culture. Like, a lot of people would not remember, like, the initial is called, I think they call it the hacker crackdown in 1991. What happened was the, 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 pretty much, the national phone system in the United States on the East Coast went down, and everybody thought it was because of hacking. It was actually because of a two-line coding error that took took it down, but the, you know, the FBI thought it must be hackers. So they went after them. And then what happened was over a period of time, and I since left the NSA, but, you know, at the same time you start thinking, well, you know, NSA did communication security, you know, computers were just a different form of everything moving to communication, you know, communications moving to the internet, computers and everything. So it was a national, natural evolution for people or intelligence agencies and criminals to follow that. And maybe early on, there was some sign of criminals looking into this sort of stuff, but apparently, you know, they started doing, and this, is again, you'd have to, you know, hopefully this isn't like talking down to people, but you have to understand, like there were the eligible receiver exercises in the mid to late 1990s where they had NSA hackers Simulate attack, computer based attacks against military assets, like supposedly rendering a ship at sea useless, things like that, Mm -hmm. taking down the telephone system into the Pentagon and all communications into the Pentagon. And that's critical because frankly, 90% of all military communications went through telephone lines. Mm -hmm. You know, there weren't leased lines and there probably still are not leased lines. So it really, you know, military communications were just encrypted communications that went over normal telephone lines or whatever the case is. So anyway, when you start looking at it, were criminals always on board or who was looking at it? There was always this evolution. NSA has kind of always been there. And then you look at like the history, you hear about the quote unquote equation group that started somewhere around the year 2000-ish or so and all of their successes. But you start looking at where nation states have gone. Yes, I mean, frankly, all the nation states tend to be rather egregious on where, what they've been doing with regard to attacking personal business, things like that, and so on.
0: You've advised or held leadership positions at some very notable companies, uh, HP, Walmart, Silence. For someone early on in their career who has this level of ambition, uh, what advice can you give them? How does somebody go from researcher or analyst to someone writing security policies for Fortune 100 companies?
2: So what I tell people, and this is like against at what all what people wanna hear, but frankly, I didn't start out in cybersecurity doing cybersecurity. Even when you look at, for example, when I worked at NSA doing cryptanalysis, I didn't look at it as doing cybersecurity. I just looked at it like I was programming computers that just happened to be breaking, you know, nation state level codes and things like that. And it was just great learning how to program. I did system administration. I did crappy jobs like adding printers to networks. God, if you can add a printer to the network, you (laughs) are like a god. Too many people think, I don't want cybersecurity to be in an entry-level position. You know, people are going to hate me for that. But honestly, in order to secure something, you should know how it's used, how it's operated. You should have experience being an admin, and then you get the experience of knowing, okay, now that I've been an admin for so long, now I know how to implement, you know, secure users. Now I know how to set permissions. You know, if you don't know how to code, how are you gonna tell, you know, what gives you the right to tell people how they should be coding their software securely? Mm -hmm. You know, there's so many fundamental issues that people need to learn the fundamentals in order to learn how to do the fundamentals securely. And the more you have a broad swath of experience, the better you're gonna be in cybersecurity. Frankly, it's not just You know, it's not just the fact that you have a technical breath. You also get a business breath. You learn how to talk to people. You learn the aggravation that the developers are going through. You learn why these stupid things are done. You know, I use the analogy that, you know, somebody was saying, oh, there's all these stupid laws. Like, you know, you can't ride your horse on a highway. The reason there's a law that you can't ride your horse on a highway is because... You know, somebody did that and there was no law against it. So they made a law for it. Yeah. They didn't just sit around and that. Well, most of the time, it's not like San Francisco, but they don't just, you know, most people don't just sit around thinking of stupid laws, or at least they didn't. You know, they did things based on reaction. And a lot of these stupid things people think developers, admins, and everybody else are doing, there's reasons Like, for example, I remember I was once um, early in my career, I was doing firewall assessments and I sent out a firewall, I sent out a survey sheet and then I got it back and I had to call up the admin who filled it out. I go, excuse me, I think there's a problem here. You know, um, when I got your form back, it said pretty much you allow everything in and everything out. I didn't want to know what you can let in and can let out. I want to know what you are letting in and are letting out. And the guy was like, oh, I let everything in and everything out. I'm like, you have a router, not a firewall in that case. He's like, well, here's the issue. He goes, what happened was when we first got the firewall, I set everything. I locked everything down. And then I kept getting complaints. And I kept, I kept making exceptions based on the complaints that were reasonable. And then he's like, one day... The CEO was upset, and again, dating myself. The CEO was upset he couldn't get to his AOL account, and I got yelled at. Then I just let everything in and everything out. I haven't got a complaint since. <laughs> and until you've worked as an admin to understand these things, until you've worked doing all these crappy jobs, you know, which frankly are a great learning experience, it helps you bring breadth and depth into what you can do in cybersecurity. And it allows you, if you're going to be a senior security, per, you know, cyber security person at a large organization, you have to understand the crap the cloud organizations are going through. You have to understand the crap that, you know, the supply chain people are going through. You have to understand all these different things in the business purpose. And you can't get that if you bury your whole career in cybersecurity.
0: I've often heard that the help desk is the right place to start if you want to uh Go far in cyber securities.
2: Well, that might be a little bit too basic. I'll, I'll just say it that way.
0: A lot of the work you've done is enabling companies to do business while staying secure. Uh, what is a common thread when you come into contact with a new organization?
2: I joke that when I do penetration testing, I can tell how successful I'm going to be within the first 30 seconds. And I can walk around and people are like, what do you mean? I go, well, if I'm the only person wearing a badge, that's not a good sign. Mm -hmm. If I see, you know, people opening up, holding the door open for people, not a good sign. If I see lots of sensitive information left on desks that are left unattended, not a good sign. That tells me that the organization from a security perspective is rather weak. And so what this turns down to is cybersecurity... You know, I mean, there's the expression cyber hygiene mm-hmm. and cyber hygiene is actually really, really critical in doing the right, you know, in 99 percent of cybersecurity, You know, there used to be a, you know, studies back then. I don't know how valid they are, but, you know, for example, 97 percent of all attacks against like the Pentagon could have been stopped with basic protections put in place you know and some of those are software updates you know most of them you know most of them seem to be configuration issues where you have otherwise secure software that's not configured securely and these are the things where things happen and you know a lot of people say oh well there's also the users and well you know 90% of attacks target the users I go the problem is I mean, there's there's a, a a meme that's going around LinkedIn and other places and they show an airplane. And it has the story that, you know, engineers surveyed where World War Two planes were shot up and they went ahead and said, well, all the planes came back with bullet holes here, 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 here. And they said, OK, well, we've got to go ahead and secure those better. It's like, no you have to secure where there's no bullet holes. And the reason is, is that the places that are shot where there's no bullet holes are the planes that don't come back. Right. And so when I look at that, and you're talking about the analogy of targeting the user, the reason you users are quote unquote targeted is because they are the least secured and not the user individually, but around the user that's least secured. Again, it's the shots you don't see on the airplanes that survive mm-hmm. and the reason is is that yes we expect a user to click on a phishing. I don't care what you your your awareness provider says having written security awareness for dummies let me say yes security awareness is critical but it is not anybody who tries to tell you they can promise you the human firewall which implies nothing will get through your users is again a fool or a liar or both. What you are actually doing is you're trying to secure your user as best you can, but we have to expect the user to fail. It's a given. Mm -hmm. A user will inevitably fail. Why are we allowing the user? Somebody who says the user is the last line of defense. God, I hate that. A user is never your last line of defense. If they are, you should be fired (laughs) very quickly. Because think of it this way. If a user sends out a data, what about data leak prevention? You know? If a user downloads malware, shouldn't your systems have anti-malware? Should a user be allowed to download executable software in the first place, which means permissions should be set? So we look at the environment, you know, and then for a user to get a malicious email message, it had to go through your perimeter, it had to go through your secure email gateways, it had to go through the, you know, endpoint protections. So for a user to click on the message and looking at it and blaming the user is where, you know, my book, You Can Stop Stupid. Stupid is not the users. Stupid is the security professionals or system designers that allow a user to ruin their network. And it's allowing the user to ruin the network because a user can just initiate loss. They don't cause the loss. So anyway, with that being said... um, I think I over answered your question, so I'll leave it at that. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, that
0: was a great answer, and you know, I was kind of gonna, it was kind of leading into how do you build a security culture at a large organization that maybe didn't have one before.
2: So the thing is, you always have a security culture. It might be pathetic, but it's always there. Now the question is, how do you create a strong security culture? And people tend to, you know, there's no, just telling a user, oh, be aware and everything will be fine. You know, that's a fallacy. You know, there's actually something called the information action fallacy, which says that just providing people with information will therefore create the action you want. Again, fallacy. If everything, if it was that easy, you know, people just need to know to eat less and exercise more. We'd never have a (laughs) case of obesity again. Yeah. You know, it takes more than that. And what it means is, yes, we first off have to go ahead and provide a technical infrastructure that supports a foundation for a practical culture. That's number one. But you also have to have management and enforcement. A lot of people think, oh, I don't want to blame the user. I don't want to punish the user. Honestly, you have to at many levels. Because, for example, I I will give you a case study where I once went into an organization and they paid me to infiltrate them and rob them blind, which I did. Then they wanted to see, you know, six months later, if there was any improvement. So I went back in and it was even worse. So anyway, what happened was I went back in and then they said, before you leave, I want you, you know, the CISO said, before you leave, I want you to meet with this guy. He's the admin for the systems that last time you basically stole everything from. and he. And he he wants to talk to you about it. I'm like, okay, sure. So anyway, did that. And, you know, and I went back, I spoke to the guy. And the guy's like, so what'd you do? I'm like, basically described how I hacked his systems. And first it was like, why? I go, you know, it's cliche, but you had all the data. Mm -hmm. And then I said how I did it. And then he was like, and then I go, I have a question for you. How come it's worse now than it was before? He's like, oh, that's easy. He's like, what happened was he goes, essentially... We went ahead last time and, you know, the CEO put out a message saying cybersecurity is important. Then he goes, look at this. I got a new message today saying that, um, you know, sexual harassment is bad. He's like, I agree. Sexual harassment is bad. I don't know what to do. I acknowledge that. I have my message. I put it in the trash. Um, I get another message that says, you know, contribute to the United Way. I go, contribute to the United Way is good. Okay, good. Throw it in the trash. Goes, I get another message saying cybersecurity is important. I agree. Take it, put it in the trash. Then he goes, here's another message. This one did not come from the CEO. This one came from the head of physical security. And the company had a bunch of smash and grabs. It was a Southern California company. Where they have, instead of grass, because they don't want to water grass, they have nice big decorative rocks. Mm-hmm. And people for some reason thought, well, those decorative rocks would be perfect to pick up, throw through the window, and then grab computers and run. So they had a series of those. And, you know, I said, and the guy was like, so we had that. And what happened was the head of physical security, not the CEO, came out and put out this message and he read it to me. He's like, because of the smash and grabs, What happens is anybody who has a window office is now responsible at the end of every day for turning off their light and putting down the shades and locking their doors. Their supervisors are responsible for ensuring that this is how it is at the end of the day. The guards will do rounds to ensure that the window shades are down, the lights are turned off, and the doors are locked. And, you know, should they find any violation, the employee will be notified and the supervisor will be notified on the second violation. You know, you'll be called to the head of physical security on the third violation. You may be fired. Smash and grabs went completely away. Why? Because they told people exactly what to do, what the punishment was and how to do it. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying everything with cybersecurity is there, you know, is as defined. But if you want to go ahead and set an environment that says, yes, at the end of the day, everybody will lock up their desks, make sure their computers are turned off, make sure they don't have, if they have laptops, that they're not left unlocked or unsecured and things like that, that is creating a culture, but it needs enforcement. You can't just say it's good for the company. Because even if you say it's good for the company and people want to do what's good for the company... There's also what's known, again, another principle, as the compliance um, budget. And what the compliance budget basically says is that people have many responsibilities over the course of their business function. Now, if they have to be at a meeting on time and they're running late, what happens if their computer's not locked up? Are they going to stop and be even more late to these things? So there's a balance there. But the thing is, you're trying to go ahead and create as much compliance as possible. And that does require some level of enforcement and making sure people know, yeah, if you don't follow security, secure, you know, I mean, I, I, people say, oh, it's not fair to a user if they can't follow every security regulation. I'm like, well, if people don't fill out a time card in many places, they don't get paid. If I don't provide a receipt for my $5.58 Frappuccino, my whole expense report may be held up. Yeah. And nobody ever says that's unfair. Yeah. Why is potentially ruining the network unfair and putting critical information at risk?
0: Yeah. Very interesting. Um, You've mentioned the book you've written a couple times now. Do you want to tell us a little more about it? I saw it's available on Amazon for anybody listening.
2: So I have, um, well, three books are currently available, technically three and a half. I, I joke. <laughs> but um, so first one is Advanced Persistence Security. I wrote that with a, my, my co-author was the co-host of the Irari Report. But anyway, that focuses on how to put a comprehensive cybersecurity program together You know, advanced persistent security was a joke on advanced persistent threat. It's a fundamental cybersecurity book, was nominated for the Cybersecurity Canon Award and so on. My more recent books, uh, You Can Stop Stupid, which basically talks about how human actions can initiate loss and how to proactively mitigate the loss from being initiated and then also proactively expecting a loss to be initiated and how to prevent any resulting damage. So that's um, You Can Stop Stupid, and that's a really good book. And then um, Security Awareness for Dummies is one of the four dummies series and how to create a security awareness program. My half a book, as I joke, is cybersecurity all-in-one for dummies that um, the dummies people took out, you know, the more valuable portions of security awareness for dummies and threw it in with a couple with five other books to call it Cybersecurity all-in-one for dummies more expensive and i just like my original book best but that's a separate thing
0: interesting while researching for this interview i was looking through your linkedin profile and i noticed you're a member of the explorers club can you please tell me more
2: So the Explorers Club is a group... I mean, frankly, I was like one of those things. I was honored to be able to join. And um, the Explorers Club includes people who, like, have explored the world. And, like, you know, astronauts, people who... You know, like James Cameron finding the Titanic. You know, people who go out and do research and surveys. And I don't want to say they're Indiana Joneses. That gives people the wrong impression. But there are some people who do some really cool things. And um, I became a member... I mean, I've done a lot of work regarding my scuba diving where I'm a, you know, I was a volunteer diver at the National Aquarium in Baltimore. I was a volunteer diver for Chesapeake Bay Foundation or McAfee River Association, which was kind of off the Chesapeake Bay and became a scientific diver, pseudo-certified, and um, I also created a kid's travel show, which basically went to different zoos, museums, aquariums and other family destinations and allow and had a couple of kids tour the places and then get behind the scenes. And that qualified me for the Explorers Club of helping to dwell out science and things like that. But oh, that's that's really cool. I've,
0: I've always had a fascination with the uh, golden age of polar exploration. And so that really caught my attention when I saw it.
2: Yeah, I, I actually had a chance to go to the Explorers Club in New York for their, uh, their Christmas party. And you could see some of the pictures that they have, some of the things that have been, re- you know, like the explorers have come and returned there and, you know, given little artifacts to and things like that. They have obviously have the polar expeditions prominently featured in a couple of different places. But it's cool. (laughs) All right on. Um, And yeah, so this is the last one I have for
0: you. And I asked this one of everybody on the show. It can be as wide or as narrow as you want. Um, Do you have any predictions for the future?
2: I mean, my only prediction for the future I can safely make is more of the same but different. You know, when I look back at the whole of, you know, I'm talking about cybersecurity. When I look back at cybersecurity, you know, you look at all the current attacks that we have. And frankly, a lot of them have just been different variations of like the Morris worm, Mm -hmm. you know, and I, and even the Morris worm was a variation of something else. But, you know, you look back in 19, I think it was 1988, Robert Morris, a graduate student from Cornell University, whose father was ironically chief scientist at the National Security Agency's InfoSec division. um, He wrote a Paper, ex, you know, well, or he basically took research. He said it was an accident. I don't believe it, but anyway, I don't. It's, it's irrelevant now. Um, where he basically found vulnerabilities that were discussed theoretically, in other words, known vulnerabilities, put it together in a tool, and got released and shut down at the time. What was a third of the internet? Wow. Now imagine that happening now. But think about what that essentially was. It was essentially a set of known vulnerabilities that were written into malware that were released. You start thinking about computer viruses and things like that. Well, it's kind of a computer virus, but they're just different ways of releasing the same things. Now people are taking similar types of attacks and focusing it and making that into extortion ransomware, potentially DDoS attacks, much like the Morris Worm attack was, and so on. And when I look at what's going to happen in cybersecurity, yeah, I look and the criminals are going to follow the money, which is nothing new. You're going to look and see, okay, there might be some nation state attacks trying to take down infrastructure, kind of like uh, what the Morris Worm would have done if infrastructure was on the internet at the time and so on. So again, more of the same, just different.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I, I really enjoyed the conversation and uh, I hope everybody goes out and buys your book.
2: No, I appreciate that. I, I strongly endorse those books, but <laughs> thank you. I, thanks for the time.
0: And that concludes another episode of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. We've been having a lot of fun putting the show together and would love to hear from you. Any criticisms, suggestions, or high fives can be sent to defenders at LimaCharlie.io. I would also like to thank you for listening in. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.